If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It is, such a, it is such a delight to be here and to be talking about this spectacularly beautiful book on this sort of very wintry, suddenly feeling evening. We're walking across and there are children going off to firework displays and it all just feels like winter has really... Winter has begun. Winter is here. Um, I, won't, I won't massively introduce Ali. I think it's more interesting if we have conversation. But what we're going to do always. is... <laughs> yeah, no intros. Um, yeah. Ali's just going to read for a little bit, and then we're going to really get stuck into to talking. Okay. I'm just going to read. I'm going to read the very beginning. I'm going to read from somewhere towards the end that Olivia's asked me to read, um, and then they, and then we'll see if there's see if we don't want to do another tiny reading or not. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So this is just the first two pages of this book. God was dead uh, to begin with, um, and romance was dead. Uh, chivalry was dead. Poetry, the novel, painting—they were all dead. Um, and art was dead. Uh, Theatre and cinema were both dead. Literature was dead. The book was dead. Modernism, postmodernism, realism and surrealism were all dead. Jazz was dead. Pop music, disco, rap, classical music, dead. Culture was dead. Decency, society, family values were dead. The past was dead. History was dead. The welfare state was dead. Politica- politics was dead. Democracy was dead. Communism, fascism, neoliberalism, capitalism, all dead. And Marxism, dead. Feminism, also dead. Political correctness, dead. Racism was dead. Religion was dead. Thought was dead. Hope was dead. Truth and fiction were both dead. The media was dead. The internet was dead. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Google, dead. Love was dead. Death was dead. A great many things were dead. (laughs) Some of them weren't, or weren't dead yet. Life wasn't yet dead. Revolution wasn't dead. Racial equality wasn't dead. Hatred wasn't dead. But the computer? Dead. TV? Dead. Radio? Dead. Mobiles were dead. Batteries were dead. Marriages were dead. Sex lives were dead. Conversations was dead. Leaves were dead. Flowers were dead, dead in their water. Imagine being haunted by the ghosts of all these dead things. Imagine being haunted by the ghost of a flower. No, imagine being haunted if there were such a thing as being haunted, rather than just neurosis or psychosis by the ghost if there was such a thing as ghosts rather than just imagination of a flower. Ghosts themselves weren't dead, not exactly. Instead, the following questions came up. Are ghosts dead? Are ghosts dead or alive? Are ghosts deadly? 
But in any case, forget ghosts. Put them out of your mind, because this isn't a ghost story, though it's the dead of winter when it happens. A bright, sunny, post-millennial, global warming Christmas Eve morning. Christmas? Two? Dead? And it's about real things really happening in the real world, involving real people in real time on the real Earth. Uh Uh-huh. Earth, also, dead. On the shortest day in 1981, in the snowiest December since 1878, and on a foggy, damp, cold Monday morning, the people who are camped outside the main gate of the airbase wake up to the sound of bulldozers. The earth has been flattened all around the camp. A new sewage system will be running, the military authorities have decided, right underneath the protesters. Like hell it will. Some of the camp members sit down on the ground in front of and behind the digger. They refuse to move. The work stops. The protesters tell the camp commander there will be no laying of sewage pipes. They tell each other privately that they'll have to be up a bit earlier next time so as not to be caught on the hop. The number of protesters living at the camp tends to vary right now between 6 and 12 people, still both sexes, so soon the camp will become a women's protest only. This decision will cause a good few arguments over the months and years. There's a blue porta cabin for urgent shelter. That won't last. It'll be dismantled and taken away not long from now. There is a communal area made out of plastic tarpaulin and tree branches. People come and give talks in it, and it's somewhere a bit less weather-worn to sit. It won't last either. Some local people have been kind and have made available their bathrooms to the protesters. This was crucial when the base command turned off the water main across the road, so the protesters wrote to the water authorities. The water authorities now charge them a monthly rate. Soon the number of protesters will rise beyond anything imagined. The women will be threading coloured wool and ribbon through the fence wire all and across between the gates in intricate webbing. They'll be cutting holes in the perimeter fence with wire cutters and breaking into the base almost every night, then being sent to court to be charged with breaching the peace, then back to the camp after fines and imprisonments and cutting the holes in the fence again. There will soon almost always be holes in the fence, as many holes as there are new songs coined and sung by the protesters. In fact, there will be so many songs sung in the camp that writing them all down will take over 100 pages. There's a hole in your fence, dear Major, dear Major. Then fix it, dear Private. But the women are cutting it, dear Major, dear Major. Then arrest them, dear Private. But that doesn't stop them, dear Major, dear Major. Then shoot them, dear Private. (laughs) But the women are singing, dear Major, dear Major. The military and the police will soon discover there's not much action they can take in stopping a protest by a group of singing women that doesn't reveal the shame and the core brutality in the action they take. In just under two years from now, the first cruise missiles will arrive. In just under a year from now, on a sleety December Sunday, more than 30,000 women from all across the country, all across the world, will line up round the base fence, nine miles of fence and nine miles of people. They'll join hands in a human fence. This will have been organised by chain letter. Embrace the base. Send this letter to ten of your friends. Ask them to send it to ten of their friends. They think of themselves, the protesters, as wakers of sleepers. They consider the millions of people in the world who can't see the danger as snowblind or like explorers in a polar region about to make the mistake of lying down and going to sleep in the snow. Books about them afterwards will comment on how this is one of the analogies the protesters like most to use when it comes to trying to describe to the world the urgency of what they're doing. Close your eyes, and you're dead. For now, though, it's the protest's first Christmas week, and there will be Christmas weeks spent protesting here till all the way into the new century. The postman delivers the post. The protesters heat the water up to make him a cup of tea. He sits down to drink it on a chair that will shortly be mashed by the bailiff's pulping machine. Right now, it's still a chair. After it's gone, sit on the ground. The time will come when the military authorities will flatten this camp completely and make it impossible to rebuild it here, 
when they widened the road into the main gate, improving access for increased military traffic. The protesters will move slightly along from where the first camp was and settle there instead. I, I made Ali read that bit because I felt when I read it a couple of weeks ago, like I was so um, thirsty without knowing it for hearing, for hearing that kind of narrative, for hearing something about people who resist in this quiet, emphatic way. Um, there's, there's all sorts of things that I want to ask, and there are sort of larger questions too, but maybe we can just start with that. Why, sure. why did you bring those? It's Greenham Common, in case, in case people don't know. It is, it's, it's Greenham, but it's, it's, it, it occurs three times through the book in each of the sections. Uh, just a moment of the setting up of a protest, which starts so small and so seemingly tangential by two women going into an ironmonger's and buying some lengths of chain. And they can, they can hardly afford the lengths of chain they're buying. They have, they've only got like 10 quid with them. So they buy what they can afford, which is about four yards, which they think will do for four women. And then they can only afford those tiny little padlocks that you lock suitcases with, with what they've got left. So they buy those. And then they often go to tie themselves to the fence and uh, they arrive that morning. Um, and a woman goes and stands in front of the main gate while the other four women who are going to lock themselves onto the fence run across the grass and tie themselves to the fence while the woman standing at the front is met by a policeman who says, you're early, aren't you? And uh, she doesn't quite understand. She gets out her letter to read to him about why they're going to lock themselves to the fence at, at Greenham at, at, the, at the missile, the, the coming missile air site, air, air base. Um, and uh, he says, well, you're, you're usually here at eight o'clock. You're the cleaners, aren't you? <laughs> he really didn't, you know... <coughs> He really was bemused. That, and then he said, well, so she says, no, we're locking ourselves. And she reads out her protest and her letter about why they're doing it and why they want to you know, make the world a better place by protesting against uh, uh, the coming missiles. Um, and he, he says, oh, you have locked yourself. So you have, what have you done that for? <laughs> you know, and the whole day passes with a kind of, what are they doing that for? Uh, mode and very kind of like it's not really happening. And it's that low and that small and that mm. slight and that subtle and then it builds to a year later, a year and a half later, when 30,000 people are, you know, linked around this. And it's the build of things. It's about the, the what should we say, the, the, aggre- the, uh, the accretion of, co- of, of community, actually, uh, which I think which is what it's really about. I think this book is in lots of ways about community. Mm. Yeah. When did that particular story start sort of speaking oh. to you? about when did you feel that it was going to be a part of it? Because it feels to me like it speaks to this particular moment in time so powerfully. Do you know, I'm, I'm not sure about uh, how or when that came, but I know it came partly from looking at Barbara Hepworth's sculptures and pictures. Hepworth forms part of the spine of this, this book, much less obviously and kind of, and kind of uh, uh, shall we say, in, in, in personly, as Polly Boti does in, in yeah. Autumn. Um, but there's something about the way that she'll always cut a hole in something so that huh. you know huh. that... You know, a, a material is just a material, and so that you know that there's a way through, and so you, you know there are two sides. More than that, you know it's, there are lots of sides, and that actually you can move around something and through something, and that something isn't always uh, kind of sacrosanctly solid. Uh, mm. So it was it was something about the cutting of the holes mm. that they carried on doing uh, that I think made me think about the shift of protest and the idea of there being more than one side to something. Mm. Which actually feels like it's a really large part of the book itself because yeah, it's got so. all of these co- contradictory dialogues. People are talking to each other who have very different opinions yeah. and yet they're managing to have conversations, which again felt like water in a thirsty moment because I feel like we're not having those sort of conversations. Why aren't we having those kind of conversations? That's the, that's the, or and why that? do we believe we're not capable of having those sort of conversations? 
Do we? Why do we believe that people can't listen to each other anymore? We've, we've sort of got to a funny moment with communication. Well, it's dialogue is broken down, and dialogue broke down in a big way in this country last year. Is dialogue dead? Is dialogue dead? Is, is di dialogue is dead? <laughs> Except it isn't. You know, that's the problem with living on the net. Because as soon as you type a word into the frequent searches space on the net, uh, and, you and you put the word is after it, up comes... <laughs> Usually the word dead, which tells us a lot about the culture in which we're living, but as a form of information is not that helpful. You know, so we have to bear that in mind as we go to the screen for our help, yeah. for our information, and for the ways in which the, I don't know, the, the frequent search uh, mode uh, makes us think that something is true. So let's just, let's just pull back a bit to this quartet as a thing, which you're now halfway through. Where does it... I know, halfway through. How did halfway it... Halfway through. Fast. <laughs> it's happening very fast. Know, yeah. How did... How did... I know. My, my publisher just shrugged. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't... Now do he's being like, in the air, though. Because we did. He, Simon said... I handed him the book and Simon said, halfway through, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, Shopping. Genesis. Where did it come from? Genesis, Exodus. Everything. Yeah. On they go. It's on the Genesis, where did the where did the where did the idea for the quartet come from? What, how long has it been mulling you away? Know, I know, you know, I know, she I knows know. the answer to this story, <laughs> but they don't know. I'm asking it's innocently. A, it's a rhetorical question um, because we are a family. Like like a, a, like Claire was saying, we're a family in the bookshop. We're actually family because uh, Olivia is my cousin-in-law, um, and uh, we've known each other for a very long time. And um, while I was while I was working on Autumn, and I had a notion in my head that for a very long time I had known that I would want to write four books about the seasons and, and that I would call them each their, you know, their, just the title of the season and they would come together in the end in something bigger but made of discrete pieces. Um, so I was working away in autumn and Brexit was happening and I had promised myself and my, my, my publisher Simon that the books would be absolutely contemporary. So I was like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> doing this now and have I just made up this notion that there's a, a deeper root to this than, than the surface that uh, at the moment we seem to be dialogue is dead stuck on mm. um, and then you came round for, for dinner and Olivia brought uh, a, a picture of our old cat long gone to heaven Leo uh, a blurred picture I'd sent her in 1996 mm. yeah? yeah which said on the back I think one day I'd like it says it in a kind of Catherine Mansfield <laughs> Mannered way, it's kind of embarrassing. Actually. I hope it was a long ever, time ago. I hope, I hope nobody ever publishes anything that I, you, we ever write to anyone after you after our, you know. I think I think one day I'd like to write a a, a quartet of books about the seasons. They are so lovely and they are so gifted to us. So apart from the embarrassment, actually it was it was it was good to know that I had been thinking and have been thinking about these books somewhere under the surface. Uh, f for 20 years. Mm. Yeah. And then why seasons? You know, there's oh. so many sort of quartets that are chronological time or dance music of time or Proust that, that move through sequentially. What is it about the seasons that you can do? Because it's about time, isn't it? It is about this time. This whole quartet is and about I think time. And I think the novel in the novel form is all about time. I mm. think that's, I think it's its subject. I think, and, and the novel in, in, in this country is also about social history. Uh, those two things come together: time and social history for the for the novels that have grown out of the the, the, the so-called English tradition, which is made up of lots of traditions. But those things are the things that it always comes back to. Um, but the seasons um, they are exciting to me because they talk about time in a way which is uh, spatial and cyclic, 
and because we live so much at the moment, so forcedly on the surface, whether it's the surface of a screen or the surface of what we buy or the surface of day-to-day -day, um, kind of annotations of where we are with our lives, yeah. um, that the thing about the seasons that excites me is that they make a force which moves rather than from here to here and goes to an end. They never end. They don't end. Mm. They're a kind of deep comic optimism mm. built into us, uh, even though we die, in a way that means that, that there is continuity, there is uh, things, things, things will keep going. And not just that, but they make us dimensional. Mm. Uh, to come around to winter again reminds us of all the winters we've ever had. Somewhere in our bodies, the body memory and the, and the, 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 you know, the literal memory uh, remember all those other times mm. diachronically. Yeah. And, and they also look ahead to all the times which will come, whether we're alive or not, diachronically. Which is really strongly what happens in winter, even more than autumn, perhaps because it's barer and you can see more clearly. But yeah. you get this sense of seeing through people's lives, seeing moments in people's does lives that, that add that up. And that's yeah, good. absolutely. Okay. And it seemed like it offered you a narrative possibility that I'm not so familiar with, of being able to do that and of being able to return somebody to themselves at different moments. Well, we, so was that exciting to do? Is that because well, it just seems to me to be the, the how we live, the gift of narrative as well as how we live, which is that narrative is what happens in our heads all the time as soon as we wake up, where we revisit things about ourselves over time in in the passing moment. We just we just do. And we also revisit, as it were, things we've thought about the future in that passing moment. We hold all our times and all ourselves. Mm. You know, in our uh, chronology. Uh, you know, and, and that's also diachronic. That's also spatial to me. So it seems to me obvious that's what story can do for us. It's what story does do for us. And when we unfix ourselves from the stories that we are told about ourselves or that we tell ourselves, yeah. something really liberating. Yeah happens. That, no, that's not always easy because yeah. liberation is not always easy. And that's, that's something else that I was going to ask is that this is a story in easy. which people are telling each other stories all the time. People are offering each other stories that might give them different kinds of possibilities. But particularly there's a kind of story, and this is something that I think it goes on throughout your work, there's a relationship between the guest and the host, the stranger and the person who stays at home and what bridges those gaps and those sort of gulfs and they, you know these are political gaps as well the stranger and the person who stays oh, at home God. is the political gap in our world there's something about how stories allow a sort of hospitality for difference yeah. that I think is really amazing that's going on in winter can, can you talk about that does I that could, sound... I could talk about it for days great we've got days okay <laughs> we're locking well, the settle door down everybody <laughs> uh, <laughs> we've got a bottle and a half of water <laughs> I, but the, thing, the reason I could talk about it for a long time right now is because it's all I'm thinking about at the moment, which is that in an, in an ultimately bravado-filled hostile world across the Western world right now, when everything is about walls, divides, fences, uh, uh, supposed uh, lines between ethnicities, supposed lines between who's got and who hasn't got, in a world in which all of our culture uh, is either up against or is telling us about this division, 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 yeah, yeah, all yeah. the time. Stories are the opposite of division. They just are. I mean, and, and it makes me think of the great John Berger, the last time, I'm sorry to, if, if I've said this before, uh, it, I will have done in this room, but the great John Berger, the last time that he was in this country and he spoke, um, and Andrew Marr was in the audience at uh, the British Library and asked him, he said, you wrote The seventh, seventh Man, you wrote the great book about the movement of people across the world for economic migranty uh, of the, th that time. What do you think now about the number of people who are crossing the world, 65 million people mm. on the go right now? What do you think about 
How, what, are your, what are your thoughts on, on the movement of people across the world right now? And Berger sat very quietly for a bit and then he said, I have been thinking about the artists and the storytellers' responsibility to hospitality. And then he said, the thing about a storyteller is someone comes into the house, you invite them in, you sit, they, they sit down next to the warmth, you give them something to drink, and then you entertain and tell the story. And then something's happening between the storyteller and the guest. And it's true that all stories are about hospitality. It's true that everything mm. about the voice and the ear <laughs> mm. <laughs> means mm. that something opens for all of us. Everything that matters to us across identity, across the ways in which we tell ourselves, across time, across our understandings of ourselves in time, and across our understandings of ourselves with other people mm. and in the world, and survival base at base. And I think about it because Berger, I think, has said the magic thing there. He said the thing. He said the, the magic words, the magic, the magic gift to us, which is that to tell any story of ourselves involves asking hospitality and offering hospitality. Therefore, the real handshake, the real commerce between us is one of hospitality mm. and how we're going to get anywhere in a world in which you know, the, the, the global constraints tighten every day. Yeah. on what's available yeah. to, to, to people all over the world, uh, simply in, in terms of climate change. Um, never mind the shifts of people because of war and the shifts of people because of uh, ethnic disagreement and, and mm. uh, foulness between ethnicities. It seems to me it's, we have to think positively. What are we on earth for otherwise than to think how to get through the things which, the things which trouble our contemporary histories? Mm. And it, it feels to me like this is a book where you've Humanely. almost... I, I felt like that Berger question, we were both at that event, and I felt like that question has sort of stayed with you and is very deeply into the roots of winter. I think, I think, I don't think I've ever written about anything else, to be honest. But yeah, no, I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's true, but it feels like this is really trying out with lots of different types of characters and seeing what kind of different positions people can come to. There are these two sisters who, one of whom has a background in protest or a future in protest, a life in protest, yes. and one of whom is a businesswoman who's very sort of closed off. And the kind of, this is part of what I'm saying about dialogue, the kind of dialogues that they're capable of having and not capable of having, and the kind of loving accommodations they can find even when they hate each other. Yeah. There's some brilliant scene, isn't there, where they're having a fight and then one of them's got her head on the other one's shoulder, but they're still saying, I hate you. And it just felt like that's, that's something that I felt, again, what a, what a great thing to be able to find. It's just, it, that happens in every family. You know, where, where we, we hate each other so much and love each other so much all at the same time. Mm. I mean, it's a, it's a really familial thing. Mm. Yeah. And yet there's something about both happening in the same place. It feels to me like culturally right now, we're getting more and more towards some idea that those things can't occupy the same space. If people are loving, then they're not arguing. And if people are arguing, then they're not loving. If we become binary, then uh, we, we lose hope, actually. Mm. If, we, if we simply become divisively binary, we lose the possibilities of multiplicity. You come down on one side or the other, then that's you stuck on your side. It always, always makes me think of Sebat writing about fortifications. Once you put fortifications in place, regardless of what side you are on of fortifications, you are in prison. Once you've mm. put your wall up or put up your fence or put up your protection, your protective territory space, you are yourself imprisoned yeah. in your own notion of and the place you live. Yeah. So, nice moment to ask, what about the place of Shakespeare in this one? Oh, Shakespeare. And especially okay. A Winter's Tale and Cymbeline. Okay, um, 
because they feel like books that refuse boundaries and refuse binaries. You know, Sh Shakespeare. What can I say? Um, if you if you can if you can coast on Shakespeare's back in a book, then you're doing fine. And, and, uh, and I intend to coast all the way <laughs> through this quartet. Um, and this is this is uh, this isn't a choice I knew would happen. Actually, I thought I thought maybe that the the giving spirit of these uh, of this four books would be Dickens, really, and mm. it is Dickens. Yeah, and it all, to, to some extent, it always will be Dickens because we are living so Victorianly right now, uh, without the philanthropy, you know. <laughs> Yeah, um, there's a line about a homeless person in the street, and it's something about this Victorian ghost, and it just made me think: what, how did we suddenly get back to that? How this pinched Victorian ghost. What is the? You know that thing in Lewis Carroll where, where she says it's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards. You think it's a really poor society, and it's about the poor when the society only works backwards. Mm. And that, at the moment, is what's happening particularly in this country. Mm. So where would be Shakespeare? Um, so when I was writing Autumn, the Tempest just came straight in to the to play in the yeah. story so i thought okay the late plays which the la the, 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 the last four great plays um a cymbeline a pericles winter's tale and tempest i think will play some role in each of the books and with this one i was like oh i don't i don't know obviously it's supposed to be the winter's tale but actually it was cymbeline it was cymbeline which is which is the story of the beginning of britain mm. <laughs> the story of the beginning of and and the, the, the ways in which empire works uh, so that's at root in this story of our country right now. It's the it's the notions of what a, what a Britain is and what an empire is, mm. and but it, uh, but it's also about disguise and and uh, and po poisonous lies um, and uh, fake news, as it were. I mean, fake news is mm. all through Shakespeare. He's very mm. good at fake news. He knows. He knows, yeah, yeah, yeah. He know, he knows that fake news is nothing new. Yeah, um, and that we will always, as a people, have to deal with um, a. Our, our need for, and we'll have to deal properly with and, 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 and uh, decently with our need for truth, you know, as, as, a, as a species. So all of those things, I think, are in, are in kind of just came, fell, fell into place for this. I want to, I want to ask about um, the artists, and I know you touched on it right at the beginning, but Pauline Boaty has this huge part in Autumn, and then Hepworth, it's almost like Hepworth. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. 
any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Pieces are more present than Hepworth herself. Well, I like that. Yeah. yeah. I do think, I do think there's a, Hepworth, Hepworth's gift in a way was to, was to, was to personalize the impersonal, was to, was to, yeah. was to give you a sense of something so much larger than the self. As soon as you look at a piece of her work, that you understand yourself, but you also understand anonymity. And that, yeah. In, itself, yeah, yeah. that in itself, from someone working through the 20th century, wanting the shifts and change, changes to work out uh, in the way that we would understand, that's what I think Hepworth is always trying to do in a piece, to put us in time timelessly. And yeah. you have the sense of these sort of heavy objects, these physically heavy objects, but these sort of objects that are heavy with memory as well, that keep appearing through the book. Uh-huh, if you say so. Um, <laughs> that's an alley response whenever you say anything about the books. Oh, I, okay, just don't I, know. Know. I, can't, I can't tell you what to think about the book. It's just, yeah. I, can tell you what, I can sort of tell you what I've been thinking about the book as afterwards and as I was writing it, but, but good. Yeah. No, it was good. It was good. It didn't feel like anything I'd read about Hepworth before. It felt like feeling Hepworth. It felt, it felt like experiencing the sculptures. <laughs> I'm just going to say Hepworth, she's so uh, famous in the world that the spectator, when they put a, a lovely review of this book online, <laughs> put a picture of her granddaughter up instead of her. <laughs> so, I have a feeling someone just looked at it, you know, it was like, that, that must be her. She's standing in front of one of her sculptures. And just, yeah. But maybe not. But the, the photo isn't marked, so I'm not sure. But there's, there's, there's something about the anonymity of women artists. Yeah. Which, you know, and also there's a story, there's a story, um, a, a, little, a little splinter of a story in this book, which, again, I've been thinking about since, uh, since before I started the, the quartet, which is that um, a couple of years ago, uh, a guy was uh, coasting on eBay. Um, he liked to buy paintings. He's a collector. And uh, he was coasting on eBay and he saw a picture that was just simply called Portrait of a Young Woman. And he thought, that's a nice one. Oh. And it was by an artist. He bought it, £100 or $100 or $200 or something. And he bought it and he got it and he opened it and it was signed Ethel Walker. And it said on the back, Portrait of Miss Hepworth. Mm. So he was like, I wonder who she is. So he looked up. Hepworth, and he saw there was a place called the Hepworth Wakefield. So he said, he thought, I wonder if that's got anything to do with the Miss Hepworth that's on my picture. <laughs> it's Barbara Hepworth. You look at it, you know it's Hepworth. Anyway, he wrote to them, and they wrote back and said, yes, we think it possibly is her. So Hepworth, when she was about 17, 18, was uh, up in Robin Hood's Bay, which is where her family went to summer. And lots of artists summered in Robin Hood's Bay because the light was so good and because the, the world mm. was so wild on the, on the cliffs. Um, and Ethel Walker who at that point was a royal academician, one of the few female royal academicians, and whose paintings are in every municipal collection in this country, unless the municipal collections have been sold off, which lots of them have, because she was <laughs> so famous and so well-known. Has anyone in this room ever heard of Ethel Walker? She was like the... Wow. She was like the, <laughs> Literally nobody! She was the Barbara Hepworth of her time. This is what I'm saying. So, so, so then you have this... This revelation of the knock-on effect of what time does to artists generally, but particularly maybe mm. to artists who happen to be women, mm -hmm. which is that you can be as famous as you like in your time. You can be a, you know, in the Royal Academy, everybody sees your pictures. Yeah. Uh, and then zilch, you die and it just disappears. So that's partly the anonymity of and the workings of time and the anonymity mm. that happens. But but the things that wash back impact out of time of, as well. The impact of the art. Mm. I mean, when you look at that picture, it's a fantastic picture of a girl. She's so intelligent, so clever, so bright, so there and so ready for the world. That's what happened when those two artists came together. You know? mm. She saw Hepworth's hands. 
really is what happened. You see the intelligence of her hands already oh. before she's a sculptor. You see the intelligence of her hands. And then another thing I wanted to ask about, this book's got a fantastic character called Lux. And I started, I wrote down the word radiant disruptors because there are these characters that occur in Ali's books who just... Radiant disruptors? Radiant disruptors. They just kick stuff off. That's brilliant. Right? Yeah. They're there. Come They're always there. there. You can have yeah, that. I mean, yeah. you invented it. Yeah, I just yeah. named it. Yeah, you named it. <laughs> That's non-fiction versus fiction. Um, <laughs> but not, not for long. <laughs> not for long. <laughs> no, no, no. No comment. No comment. Family. family. Um, <laughs> I've lost my thread now. Lux. Yeah, so these, these, these women, oh, they tend to be women. I think they're always women. There's one in The Accidental. There's Ash and Like. Ali's incredible first book, which if you haven't read, you ought to read because it's just the greatest book. What do they do? What are they doing? Oh, God, I don't know what we'll they're doing. We'll talk about Lux, they, if that's easier. They, they are um, doing the thing that happens in ancient myth, mm-hmm. which is that mm-hmm. you hear a knock at the door and you go to the door. It's the thing about the door again, the thing about whether or not you will welcome the person in. Yeah. I mean, uh, Elizabeth Smart says it in uh, by Grand Central Station, I sat down there, she's got a line uh, where she says, I am the green leprechaun of fortune knocking at the door to see who will be kind. I liked it. Green Leprechaun of Legend, looking at the door to see who will be kind. I mean, that's, and you know, that also makes me think of the word kind because the word kind and humankind uh, are related in that they are also about family. The the kind, you are in kind to someone. We are, you know, we have something in kind when we are family. There's something about the notion of kindness which just reminds us all the time about our familial relations. Yeah. You know, locally and as a species. Yeah. So there's something about the stranger at the door. Is the stranger a devil or is the stranger a, an angel? Is the stranger going to mean that when they come into your house and you feed them the two strangers, they're going to turn you into trees and you're going to live forever? Mm. Which, you know, is which happens in Ovid, mm. uh, in that gorgeous uh, story. The arrival of the outsider, it just kicks all the insides out. And then people have to know what their insides are. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's a, I, I love it as a myth. I love it as a story. It, it's, it, it's what Christianity, if you like, is rooted in. Mm. The person, the arrival of the person who, you know, ends up yeah. as the, the, the sacrificed outsider. Yeah. It's all the, actually, all the religions are based on yeah. the arrival of the person who ends up the sacrificed outsider. How could we not be interested in that right now in the world when, when the, the demarcations between insiders and outsiders are so being so firmly cemented. And the crossover is so policed. So those sort of encounters become rarer and rarer. And you bring them back to just being a regular thing. You meet somebody at a bus stop and suddenly these sort of cycles start. I, I like that they're just so sort no, of it's not, I'm not doing it. We do it all the time. We do it when we stand next to someone at a bus mm. stop and someone either speaks to us or, or we speak to somebody. Or even if we don't speak, something happens. A mm. dialogue is in place even sometimes with no language. Mm. A dialogue happens. And either we can go with the dialogue yeah. Um, or we'll, you know, decide not to go with the dialogue. But there's the question of openness all the time. Yeah. 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 But it sort of, it, it renews that sense of those possibilities or it reminds you that that is the world you're actually operating in. When I think it's very easy to be misled into feeling like you're in a different kind of world. It's right very there. easy just to sit in front of a screen or to have your earphones in um, or to look at our phones. I mean, we all have, we all have screens in our pockets. It's very easy to screen yourself. Mm. Uh, from anything that's around you and then you don't have to interact and then that makes life easier because you don't have to interact because sometimes interaction is frightening and and terrifying and more so as we get more and more boxed by our screens and then I'm going to turn over to you guys in one minute I'm going to ask one more question which leads in nicely from that in the 
era of the virtue signal, the worst phrase anyone has ever What's come up with. Signal? Have you not heard what the virtue signal is? What oh, is it? God, could somebody else tell her? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be the person that introduced Ali to it. What's the virtue signal? Oh, right, I've got you. Okay, I understand. I understand. Like you're just showing it's a, off. It's a bit like me being an elitist um, yeah. because I write novels. Yeah. Be, yeah. So, so that's right. So the fact that... Uh, so you uh, can't do a good deed now. You're so, just virtue signaling by yeah, telling somebody Yeah, and else. there's no point in any of the elite having any knowledge of anything because they're just the elite. Mm. Is that, that, it's the that same. sort of thing. It's basically the same, isn't it? Yeah. White yeah. What's white knight in there? <laughs> 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 I mean, we could go really deep here, <laughs> but that was just the beginning of my question. You know what we have to do in this world? We have to do some more green knighting, is what I think. So, so Gawain and the green knighting, we have to we have to start crossing the world in a, in a much more kind of a much more knowledge of our legends and then in the ways in which uh, our moralities are always at play in the world, you know. Yeah. 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 Okay, I'm going to finish the question though, which was that was just the beginning. Virtue, um, virtue in signal. the area of virtue signaling, yeah. how can you write about goodness, which you do brilliantly, oh, without please. being sentimental? Yeah, but how do you do that? I don't know. Uh, how does I, what? Because goodness exists, and because it yeah, always see, will exist, and, and 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 because well, actually, because because we want to be good. Because we're here on Earth as a species that is intelligent and has choices. And because something in us goes towards the good, mm. um, and always will. Yeah. Um, and what I really need now is like Iris Murdoch here on my arm so to to explain the, the philosophies of going towards the good. Yeah. But actually, that's that's at the centre of I don't know the moral questions I ask. My, I am asking myself now about the world in its most self, and particularly right now in the world across the Western world, at its most selfish, at its most denying, at mm. its most closing off. Um, how, how to be good, mm. uh, and 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 how to how to stay kind mm. um, in a world that laughs at kindness mm. and is and and is and and is turned on by on almost every television program uh, humiliation. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. These are not the things to get turned on by. Yeah. In, in you know, in if, and if they are, then our our, our uh, desires uh, will atrophy us. Okay, over to you guys on that intense note. Hiya. Um, I wanted to ask. If there's something about, so with the quartet, um, all of them kind of writing them so currently um, and kind of responding to current events with them, if you're a little nervous about writing spring, which is a season that obviously is about, I guess, traditionally about thawing and about hope, and if you're a little concerned about how, both in writing that and in writing all of them, about how you're going to tie in what's happened since you wrote the last one with the story that you're telling. Okay, uh, did, did everyone hear that? Yeah, no, did you not hear at the back? Um, the questioner asked, uh, am I worried about, uh, right, because I write so close to current events, did you say, to, top, to kind of topicality, am I worried about writing spring, which is a, a, a season all about hope and thaw, and, um, and, and, and am I also worried about how to tie in the books beforehand? Um, no, I'm looking forward to spring a lot. Um, I'm looking forward to the next two, actually. I wasn't looking forward to winter. Um, but then I'm like that about the year. So par partly it's my, my own... That's why I'm ending on summer, because 
because summer's so great, <laughs> and, and, and because the, the leaf is full in summer, and because I want us to... And I, didn't, I, wouldn't, I couldn't have chosen this. I couldn't have known what was going to be happening in the world when I started out. But the notion that in 2020 we might be somewhere closer to a summer, I have to hope for it. And, and, even, and if, even if we aren't, I'll still be hoping for it. You know, we'll be pushing, at least we'll be pushing forward to, to something which, you know, the seasons are about the passage of time. Thank God, time, time does pass, you know, yeah. and these, you know, in, in the world, you know, sometimes pass more slowly than others. Um, so we have to hope for a non, a non, you know, a short winter, as I think. The, 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 the thing about working with these books is, and this is going to sound precious, but it isn't precious at all. It's, a, it's one of the things which happen when you work with narrative and actually presumably work with any of the arts, which are incredibly generous and giving as well as incredibly disciplined and asking, is that they give all the time. And as I'm writing winter, now I know where I'll be at the very end in a way that I didn't know at all when, when I was beginning winter and had written autumn. No idea what was, what was coming ahead. Now, it's, now I know it because of what's happened in the, in the, the fallout of winter. Um, I have a kind of a structure for the books. I, uh, there's, there's a structure across time which will allow us to see a whole century backwards and forwards. Uh, when we get to the end of the, the, the quartet, we have, will have visited the 60s, the 80s, the 20s and the 40s. Um, and yet we will also still be contemporary. There will still be a, a contemporary story, a contemporary line. So I, I, I have some footholds, but God knows where I'll be with it. And God knows what it will bring, and God knows what it will ask me to do. I kind of know what I'd like it to ask me to do, but I don't know if I'll get away with it or if it will ask me to do something else. So those things, but I think those things are life. I think they're the life force of writing anything. I think not knowing is the whole point. Um, and that the things we think we know are just the thresholds to the things we find out when we go to where we thought we knew and find it wasn't what we thought after all. So he, roll on spring, so I say. <laughs> but really roll on summer and, and whatever book I'll write after these. <laughs> 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 yeah. Good question, thank you. Uh, lots of your writing seems to be about, um, and especially artful, is about dealing with grief. Um, I think there's a lot of grief in a lot of your texts. Um, and also thinking of how to be both and how to be good. Um, is it useful to think of your novels or novels in general as anything similar to self-help books? <laughs> um, they don't help me much. Um, they help you. Oh, you sweetheart. Um, well, they help me in that it's my job. Yeah, um, self-help books. Um, grief. I don't really know how to answer that because I'm a person who's had quite a happy life, really. Um, uh, you know, my, you know, the, the, the deaths I've experienced and the losses have been the kinds of losses and deaths we all experience all the time. It may well be that, um, that a, I'm able to write about it because I haven't actually, you know, met, met a wall in it in quite the same way as, as other people may have. Or, but, the, but there is something about the grief experience which I connect, connect to the experience of being unwell. And there was a time in my life when I was very unwell, and so therefore was out of the cycle of things that carries on, continues for most people and as, as our lives move on. And there was something about the separateness of that, and there was something about the questions that it made me ask. Again, I found very liberating as, a, as, as someone who ended up writing after you know, I had a time out, as it were. It was a gift to me uh, of being able to understand the world in a different way. And I wonder if grief on all its levels 
right the way down to profound grief, right the way up to the surface griefs of of uh, Olivia just had a spider running across her hand, and we were trying not to <laughs> to kill it earlier. And the, the surface griefs of the the, the little the, the tiny the momentary the still huge losses that happen every day. There's something about the admittance of loss that makes us build, <laughs> for mm. you know, and makes us move forwards. There's maybe something about that. But I'm all, I also think that art, in all its forms, is about mortality, and I can't think it isn't. I can't think it's not utterly connected to the fact that we live and we die, and that life is short, and that our relationship with life is enhanced uh, at every point when we remember that life is short, and that it matters, <laughs> and doesn't matter at the same time. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. I love that question. That was a great question. Me too. It was a good question. Yeah. Um, I'm sort of barely literate, so I'm going to ask you a question about your front covers, if that's okay. Yeah, you can. <laughs> I, um, I, I too am barely literate. Uh, why Hockney? Why Hockney? <laughs> yeah. Oh, for, for, for these ones? Uh, in general. Because uh, Hockney is also on the cover of sure, uh, There But sure. For The, which, which we were really lucky and happy to, to, to have happen. Um, uh, my, I am lucky at my publisher uh, in that uh, I, g I get more, a great deal of say about the, the, the covers that happen in my books. Um, and... I'm particularly lucky in that my, my publisher looks after me about wanting there to be a work of a work of a different kind of art on the cover of a book. Um, I kind of think if you pick up a book which offers you one art, uh, and then the the very the very notion of all the arts is kind of held in the mm. shifts that happen in the language, which is held in a, a picture from somewhere. There's a there's a relationship that runs between the arts, which immediately happens as soon as you suggest that uh, that a book is also a visual a visual. And it is, and a, and a, and a, a sculptural, and uh, as soon as you open and, and language happens, something choreographic also happens, you know, all the, the arts connect, number one. Uh, number two, Hockney. Um, when we were looking for uh, a cover for uh, the paperback reissue uh, of Hotel World um, and the paperback of There But For The, um, we asked him, and he was, we found this picture, which, which is a particularly wonderful picture for, you know, alongside what the novel seems, I think, is doing in the world. And he said, yes. I was like, oh my God, Hockney actually said, yes, this is really, really exciting. Yeah? Well, you, you know. Yeah. You know. So, so, so then, then I, I had, I had uh, spoken to Simon, uh, my, my, my publisher, about these four books. Um, and he turned up to meet me, and we were going to the British Library, and we were going to go and see the manuscript copy of Keats's To Autumn oh. as a kind of an omen to, to, to set the books off. I hadn't even started really thinking about the books. And in the cafe, after we'd seen the Keats handwriting, Simon got a kind of roll of papers out of his bag, and he showed me the cover for autumn, the cover for winter, the cover for spring, and the cover for summer. He said, look, <laughs> Hockney has said yes. And we have, we have all these, the, you know, his, his seasonal... Uh, the same, the same lane, his version, in the different seasons, he had said yes to. So partly my, I went into a state of deep fear because, <laughs> because there were covers now for four books that I had no idea whether they would <laughs> ever exist. And, and, uh, and we did, we did a, a conference at Penguin earlier this year and behind me were all the covers of all the books. I was like, <laughs> what if I can't? You know, what if I can't? And then something about it and about the gift of it and about the assurance of it and about the kind of push forward down the lane of it meant that the book was already there so I just had to write it. So that's, mm. what, that's the way I'm trying to think about it uh, with the Hockney. So the Hockney has been a, like a magic gift to these books. 
of allowing me to think there is a whole thing already, mm. seasonal and aesthetic, into which I, I simply have to make the effort and put the work. You mentioned Shakespeare yeah. and his late plays. I, I was just wondering if there's also something of T.S. Eliot's four quartets in you know, four works, four seasons, a pattern of memory and time. Was that part of your sort of background for this? Okay, um, did you hear that question? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Elliot, you see, I'd, I'd like to say no, because I keep telling myself I'm not really an Elliot fan. <laughs> um, after all the years of reading Elliot and, uh, and thinking that I understand Elliot, thinking, no, that's... That's just that. That was there and that's finished with and that was Eliot and what an old curmudgeon who didn't like Catherine Mansfield and who, and who wouldn't publish her short stories in his favourite collections and how dare he. Uh, partly that's Mansfield's ghost just, you know, dictating in my head, which I have all the time, which you'll, you'll maybe find out in spring, but you might not. Uh, but, but, but actually, last summer, this summer just passed, I got asked to come and read the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock at the T.S. Eliot Day, which is held in a little gidding. Um, and uh, I reread Prufrock, realising I knew it off by heart, actually, this poem, and that it had engraved itself inside my heart and, you know, chest. I carry it with me always. Um, and then I began to read Eliot again properly. And, uh, and Four Quartets is just sublime. Piece of understanding of crisis and faith and survival by the, the slight, this kind of slight foothold of faith in crisis. Uh, and the very notion that, that the seasons, these seasons would link back to that act, again, give, gives me a kind of nodding confidence as to why to go ahead with, with it. The, the revelation of Prufrock was of fragility and, again, fragility and grief and loss and life, pure life, pure wit, pure hopeless hope. Oh God, you know, always give me hopeless hope because if we can have, we can have hope tacked on to the end of hopeless, then I'm there, you know. I want that. I want that thing. Um, that'll keep me going. Thank you. Nice question. Yeah. Okay. Good place to stop. Okay. Will you read a tiny bit to close us out? Okay, what do you want? Sisters. Sisters. Unless you want to do something different. I don't know what, I don't know. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> or the head. The head. How about I read, I'll read a bit of the head. Okay. Okay, so the, the, so the bit I started with, which was all, with all the dead, uh, God was dead and romance was dead, then opens uh, to this. Good morning, Sophia Cleves said. Happy day before Christmas. She was speaking to the disembodied head. It was the head of a child, just a head, no body attached, floating by itself in midair. It was tenacious, the head. This was its fourth day in her house. She'd opened her eyes this morning and it was still here, this time hovering over the wash basin watching itself in the mirror. It swivelled to face her as soon as she spoke to it, and when it saw her, it... Can something with no neck or shoulders be said to bow? It definitely dipped itself, sort of tipped forward with its eyes down, respectful, then up again, courtly and bright, a bow or a curtsy? Was it male or female? What it was was very well-mannered, polite, the head of a good, polite child. Still pre-language, maybe, because quite silent, now the size of a cantaloupe. Was it ironic or a failing to be more at home with melons than children? <laughs> Lucky for her, Arthur had caught on quickly when he was small that she preferred children to aspire to being less childlike. Though quite unlike a melon in that it had a face and a thick head of hair a couple of inches longer than itself, straggly, rich, dark, wavy, straight, rather romantic, like a miniature cavalier if it was male or... 
if female, something like the child adorned in leaves in the park in Paris with her back to the camera on the old black and white postcard of the photograph taken by the 20th century French photographer Edouard Bouba, petite fille au foyer jardin de Luxembourg, Paris, 1946. And when Sophia had first woken this morning and seen it there, the head, with the back of its head to her, its head, its hair, sorry, had been doing the beguiling thing of lifting and falling slightly in the central heating air, but only on the one side, the side directly above the radiator. Now it swayed and wafted a fragment of a moment behind the head's free-floating shifts and balances like a slow-motion, soft-focused person's hair does in a shampoo commercial. See? Shampoo commercial is not ghost or ghoul, nothing scary about it. Unless shampoo commercials, or maybe all commercials, are actually frightful visions of the living dead. And it's just that we've become so accustomed to them that we're no longer shocked. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 